0: As uh, Scott mentioned a little bit ago for the next couple of weeks we're going to have some guest preachers, uh, Jack Kranz next Sunday, and Bob Johns uh, the week after that. Uh, it's a good place for us to pause. Chapter seven kind of brings uh, the introduction to Samuel to a conclusion and then chapter eight we'll start talking about the search for a king, but um, so we'll return to that in the end of the month of March. First Samuel chapter seven, and I'm going to start reading halfway through verse two. Uh, They told us in seminary that whoever was writing down the verses, the verse numbers are not original to the text, but they used to joke with us that whoever was writing the chapters and numbers in the text was doing it on horseback, and he would occasionally hit a bounce and put a strange number in. And so um, we're going to start in the middle of verse 2, right under a passage. My Bible calls it, Samuel subdues the Philistines. So let's read here, follow along. Then all the people of Israel turned back... To the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and Ashtoreths and serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that He may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way up to the point below Bethgar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, Judging Israel in all those places, but he always went back to Rama, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. I have observed a pattern in that afflicts many people. I wonder it might sound familiar uh, to you this morning. It has to do with your expectations about the future. Uh, what you think will happen to you when the next stage in life comes. Um, what sort of things you will do and what sort of things you'll never do. Here's the pattern I've noticed. The pattern goes something like this. When I'm, and you fill in the blank with whatever stage you're going to get to, I will never have to, and hear it again, what do you fill in, again. We say things like this. When I am retired, I will never set my alarm in the morning again. Or... When I get married, I'll never be lonely again. Or, when I get my own car, I'll never be stuck at home again. Or, when I'm an adult, I'll never have a bedtime again. When I have my own house, I will never eat green beans again. (laughs) When I am the boss, I will never have to clean this bathroom again. you get the idea? Have you ever said anything like that before? Um, due to, uh, 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 um, based on a serious statistical analysis that I did this week in my own imagination, I think these assertions are wrong about 85% of the time. Uh, I, I Actually, I come to that statistic, I think listening to my children talk about their chores. When I have my own house, I'm never going to take out the garbage again. Where do you think it's going to go? I'm not coming to your house to take out your garbage. Actually, I would laugh more about that when I hear things like that if I hadn't said the same thing. Oh, we're often wrong. There are a few, though, nevers in the Bible, and since it's God's Word, none of them are ever, ever wrong. I wrote Revelation 21, four in your notes, but I want to paraphrase it. In the age to come, I will never weep again. I will never die, I will never mourn, I will never be in pain again in the age to come. That is a very precious promise. But you know what it implies, don't you? It implies that uh, until then, life in this broken world is filled with weeping and death and grieving and pain. Weeping, death, grieving, pain here and then, then never again. 1 Samuel 7 that we just read actually reminds me of another reality that is before us all the time here and that we must not try to avoid. Uh, that is for this life alone that reality is uh, repentance. In fact, uh, you could summarize the main message of 1 Samuel 7 this way. Following God faithfully means living a life of persistent repentance. That's what it means to follow God faithfully, to live this life of persistent repentance repentance to be a christian in addition to what the bible calls you to do to love your enemies to serve one another to pray without ceasing to worship to give to disciple in addition to all those things it adds this command repent 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the start of the protestant reformation uh, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted those 95 theses or 95 questions on the door of the church in Wittenberg uh, that he wanted to debate, and it was traditionally, uh, that's the start of the Protestant Reformation. Come October, we'll probably do something to celebrate that occasion. Now, most of the 95 Theses, if you were to read them, most of them have to do with nitpicky minutiae of medieval Roman Catholic theology. Many of them do. But the first one reads this. uh, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Now, this morning... What I want to do is I want to first show you that repentance is the subject of this passage. Give me a few minutes to do that. And then I want to unfold from this story uh, what repentance looks like. So first to prove that repentance is the subject of this chapter, we need to return to the overall story. Remember that in the Bible, narrative passages of Scripture make their point over chapters... And uh, uh, epistles make their point in paragraphs. So we need to constantly be thinking long, broad, when we think about stories like this in the Bible. Uh, the context for this, what's happening in chapter 7, actually begins in chapter 4. So we're going to think about all three of those chapters for a moment. Four, five, six, and seven. Oh, four of those chapters for just a moment. And uh, remember, they're sometimes called the arc narratives because the main character in these chapters by and large is the ark of the covenant the people are all mentioned in generic terms it's the people or the leaders or uh, uh, and, and the ark of the covenant is actually this this box that symbolizes god's presence is actually the main character and what happens in chapter uh, seven here is actually the reversal of what had happened before in chapter four in chapter four the israelites were dealt a crushing blow by the philistines the ark was captured here in chapter seven seven though the philistines are defeated and israel recaptures some of its territory See, so you have this difference you have defeat in chapter four and victory in chapter seven what happens here actually might remind you of how Hannah prayed back in chapter 2. So flip with me over just quick here to chapter 2. Look at verse 8, uh, what Hannah prayed. We're going to look at Hannah's prayer, I think, quite a bit as we're going through Samuel because it's, it's so important here to the unfolding of the story. But Hebrew, uh, 1 Samuel 2, eight. a throne of honor. God had lifted up the needy Israelites and set them with the Philistines in a place of honor. It's odd. Two places, both called Ebenezer. There's two places called Ebenezer. Chapter four, it's a place of defeat. Chapter seven, it's a place of victory. In in chapter 7, the hand of the Philistines is against the Israelites. At the end of chapter 7, the hand of the Lord is against the Philistines. So we have this complete reversal. Now, why? What makes the difference between the defeat in chapter 4 and the victory in chapter 7? There's two answers to that question in this passage. We're going to talk about one. We're going to focus on the second. But here's the first. What makes the difference between what happened in chapter 4 and what happened in chapter 7? First thing is Samuel's leadership made a difference. Samuel's leadership. Remember, the whole book of Samuel is about the people, the need that they have for a leader. Remember, historically in the Bible, that right before this comes the book of Judges. And what does the book of Judges say at the end? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it was a disaster. The people need a king. God shepherds his people through his anointed king. That's what Samuel's all about, how God cares for his people through his anointed king. And here's another piece of the argument. It is Samuel's presence that makes a difference between the defeat in chapter 4 and the victory in chapter 7. Samuel's been absent for these three chapters, four chapters. Do you remember? Um, He's not in the text, but I don't think he's been absent from his work. What's Samuel been doing for the past 20 years? For the past 20 years, God's been with Samuel, and he's been traveling through the land, preaching and prophesying. That's what Samuel 2 says about him. It seems like Samuel's been doing this for the last 20 years, and finally, at this point in time, he senses that the people are ready. They're finally ready for this solemn assembly, so he calls them together at Mizpah for this great meeting. What would have happened without Samuel? His leadership, actually, the importance of it is affirmed at the end of of chapter 7, isn't it, when it says that that, that throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Philistines um, um, didn't invade. God's hand was against the Philistines. Now, what's interesting, during Samuel's leadership, the Philistines are subdued. During Saul's kingship, he's the first king, the Philistines come back with a vengeance, and then they're defeated by King David. God shepherds his people through his anointed king. Well, here, in this, pa- in this case, it's his anointed prophet. Now, i want to show you something tucked away in the text. The Bible is so skillfully written. Verse 10 describes this victory in chapter 7. It says, While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed by four of the Israelites. Now in this day, and through most of human history, really until the last two or three hundred years, most people had this idea that when your army went to battle, the God that you worshipped was supposed to go with you. You fought in the land, and your God was in the heavens and was supposed to fight for you and with you. I'm sure there were references to this on um, D-Day I'm sure there were because people were probably uh, were more inclined culturally to talk about this. But uh, uh, indeed, if the weather had been really bad that day, it would not have been uncommon in human history for the Germans to say, see, God is fighting for us. He sent rain. He sent thunder. He sent lightning. God is fighting for us. We sometimes talk about that, talk that way. Um, in our civil religion, or, um, I don't, did anybody say anything like that on, uh, in any of our recent wars in Iraq or Afghanistan? The, look at the weather, God is fighting for us. Well, for most of human history, people have had this idea, our God is going to fight for us, he's going to fight in the heavens, we're going to fight on the ground. Well, here what happens, Yahweh thunders, which is odd because Baal, the God that the Israelites had been worshipping, is supposed to be the God of thunder, <laughs> There's no thunder like Yahweh's thunder. Baal, you can't thunder. Let me show you thunder. Yahweh brings the thunder, puts the people in a panic. Now, again, we talked about Hannah's prayer. Flip back with me to uh, chapter 2 again, and look what the text says. Uh, Hannah is praying about what God is going to do, and at the end of verse 9 of chapter 2, she says, It is not by strength that one prevails, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Hannah knew this. This is what God does. He thunders. Now, turn with me all the way back to the end of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Um, maybe 23. Let's see. 22. Second Samuel 22. So the book of Samuel begins with Hannah's prayer. It ends with David's psalm. And look what he says when he's talking about how God has delivered him. He's grateful for God's deliverance. And look at verse 14, what he says. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded when he defended David. So Hannah says at the beginning, God is going to thunder in defense of his king. David, the king at the end, says, the Lord thundered in defense of me. And here in chapter 7, Samuel experiences the thundering of the Lord. What does the Most High do? He thunders in defense of his own king. Now, should we think about John 12? Oh, I think we should. In John chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus prays, did I write this down for you? I think I did, maybe. I meant to if I didn't. Yeah, I did. Look. Jesus prays, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. God thunders. He does it for his anointed king. Now can I pause here just for a minute here, uh, just for a brief second. Samuel tells us God shepherds his people through his anointed king. And as the Bible unfolds, we, turn, we learn that the Lord Jesus is his ultimate anointed king. And can I suggest to you that one of the ways that you know that you're following him is that you are a repentant person? That this characterizes your life. This is how he leads his people. He leads them into repentance. Here's one of the signs that you are submitting to him. That your relationship with him is real. That extends just beyond what you say with your lips. The presence in your life of repentance. Now remember where we are and where we're going here. We notice this difference between chapter 4 and chapter 7 in Samuel. There's a difference between the two. What makes the difference? One, I said, is Samuel's leadership. Second, what else makes the difference here? Uh, This should not be a surprise to you. In fact, if you don't know what uh, to write down here, um, start paying attention. Okay, so um, the second element here is repentance, repentance, repentance. That's how the whole story begins, isn't it? Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. That's what chapter 2 says. The word turn back is, is a little bit unusual. It's a word that's translated elsewhere in the Bible. It's mourn. Actually, it's up in chapter 6, verse 19. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. This turning here is um, it's a little bit the feeling that you get, the feeling of sorrow that you have when you miss someone who's not there. This is a little bit of grief. There is somebody who is supposed to be in my life, and they're not here, and I miss them, and it hurts. And the Israelites here are experiencing this, this this absence of God, and it is painful to them. They're mourning his absence. They're turning to him. This is how they move from being fruitless people to to, uh, faithful people. Now, Moses had predicted that this would happen to them. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I wrote it down, I think it says, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Repentance is where this story begins. And I actually want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about repentance, what repentance, based on this passage, looks like. Uh, there's four elements of repentance here in the text. Here's number one. Repentance includes both a turning from and a turning to. Repentance includes turning for, <coughs> excuse me, Turning from and turning to. To. There is a negative side, there is a stopping side, and there is a positive side, a pursuit, a turning from and a turning to. You can see that in Samuel's instructions in verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Put away these things and serve the Lord only. A turning from and a turning to. That word only is really important. Because the great temptation that the Israelites faced is to put together for themselves in this polytheistic, multi-God na- uh, uh, area, put together for themselves a collection of gods that would best serve them and best protect them and help them. It's so what happens Uh, some of our outreach partners who go to Africa uh, complain one of their great challenges is uh, that um, because of the the polytheism and the animism, um, there is that yes, I'll turn to Jesus for my forgiveness of sins, but I want to worship my other gods for the other needs that I have. So the Israelites have this temptation, we're going to worship Yahweh God because he rescued us from Egypt and he's really our special God. But you know, if we want the crafts to go really well, uh, we should worship Asherah, the Ashtoreths. Um, if we want our sheep to um, conceive and give birth to healthy lambs, we should pray to, uh, to uh, Baal because he's the god of fertility. and We should pray to this god for military victory and we should pray for this god for family help, happiness. And, and, and they just build this collection of gods and, and, and um, uh, uh, worship all of them for their specific needs. Remember though, um, Samuel here is calling the people to sole allegiance to Yahweh. The Old Testament does not spend as much energy as we might think on saying those gods don't exist, those other gods don't exist. There's not as much emphasis in that in the Old Testament as we would expect. Instead, there is just an argument about the preeminence of God. Those other gods don't matter because of uh, the supremacy of Yahweh. What we see actually here lived out in Israel is a pattern that we are all familiar with. Uh, we are creatures. We are made creatures, and, and we are made to be dependent creatures. It's part of who you are. You are not the independent operator that you think you are. Any view of humanity that does not have at its center or the, this, this idea that we are dependent creatures is flawed. I have a book on my shelf. I haven't read it in a number of years. It's called Seven Theories of Human Nature. Freud, Marx, Sartre, Skinner, Plato, on and on. Those views of what it means to be a human being are flawed to the extent that they fail to recognize this dependence. I've read a little bit about the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. Not a lot, but just a little bit. Uh, David McCullough wrote a massive book about it. He's written several articles. Um, As impressive as the bridge is above the water, um, there is a massive amount of uh, construction and engineering below the water, the foundation of the Brooklyn bridge it goes deep into the bedrock of the river, and it provides that foundation is what makes the bridge stand uh, without that foundation, the Brooklyn Bridge would not stand. Human beings, you have a, a foundation too you 're not an independent creature, and God made us originally to be dependent on him he 's to be the foundation upon which we build our lives. But like the Israelites here, we are always tempted. We're constantly tempted to turn from him and to fund, to build our lives on something else. Your job, your success, some athletic or musical skill, your witty repartee, your kids, your relationships, your appearance, Something that is supposed to give you meaning and identity and purpose. All of those things that I mentioned are good gifts from God. We receive them as good gifts from him, but they were never meant to support and uphold a human life. And what you will discover in the normal course of a life, over and over and over again, you will find ways in which you have built your life on other foundations, on other things, other people. It often happens during times of transition. So your children, um, you have spent 30 years raising your kids, and now you have a lot less laundry to do and virtually no cooking at all to do. There's no games to attend. There's no concerts. There's no one to check on at night. There's no one to wait up for. uh, There's no one to talk about uh, their cell phone activity with. There's no one to teach how to drive. Um, Who are you without all those things? Do you know who you are? Do you have an existence without all those things? There has to be something other than those tasks, uh, uh, something other than waiting for grandchildren, right? What happens when you retire? uh, 45 years you've had somewhere to be every day, some defined task, some way to measure your worth of what you accomplish, and now you're done and you have nothing to do and no one to report to. What do you do? Uh, next two weeks, I'm not going to be uh, preaching. So I will spend my time those weeks uh, catching up on some administrative work that I need to do and, and doing some visiting and things that, that I, I um, need to do and will look forward to doing. Um, I will discover, because this happens to me during these periods of time, next Thursday, two weeks, a week from Thursday, uh, I'll sit down and I, I'll just notice a certain degree of restlessness in myself. That um, the pressure to study and write a sermon is good for my soul. What's bad for my soul is that sometimes when that pressure isn't there, I sense myself growing a little bit dull. And that kind of makes me afraid a little bit. What am I going to do when I retire? That's a long time in the future. I mean, a long time in the future. I know that. But I, I think about that. What, what, uh, it should not be my preaching that 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 uh, fertilizes my spiritual life. Shouldn't be my spiritual life that fertilizes my preaching. that's a problem. But what am I going to do when I don't when I don't have that to do anymore? Who, who am I going to be? Hmm. You might learn about what you're depending upon when you suffer. Um, When you lose what you think makes your life matter. When you lose your health or your income or your beauty. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, um, how do you figure out if there's rats in your basement? How do you find that out? Here's how you don't find that out. You don't find out if there's rats in your basement by going to the top of your basement stairs and saying, I'm going to go look for rats in the basement. And rattling the door and pulling it open as slowly as you can, and reaching and flipping the light, click, and stomping down the stairs, and saying, look, there's no rats in my basement. That's not how you find rats in your basement. How do you find rats in the basement? You go up to the door as quietly as you can. You jerk it open, you flash in the lights, and you jump downstairs. Then you'll maybe see rats in the basement. So it is with the things that we build our lives on. Suffering in your soul, uh, when it comes suddenly to you, viciously, it leaves you no time to prepare, what you're depending on is revealed. C.S. Lewis, he said this, Surely what a man does when he has taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. Isn't it? Suffering reveals... What's underneath? Faithful Christian living means uncovering in your life these dangerous dependencies. Ways in which you have turned God's good gifts into God's themselves. Or ways in which you have perverted or twisted uh, one of God's good gifts. We uncover them. We turn from them to sole allegiance to God. And it happens all the way through life. If you think about repentance in terms like this, which one of those do you think is is more difficult? Is it turning from, is turning from harder, or is turning to harder? Which one is more difficult? Uh, Turning from, uh, on the one hand, you have to set aside in your life ruthlessly... Behaviors or patterns that have brought you joy. That's a ruthless task. Jesus said, pluck out your eye and chop off your hand in that process. It's ruthlessness. But on the other hand, yeah, can I really trust God to provide for me? Is he really, can he really give me what I have been getting out of all those things I've been depending on? Is he really that trustworthy? Remember, we sang it a few minutes ago. Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me, find in me, thine all in all. So repentance involves turning from and turning to. Now we'll move a bit faster this morning. Secondly here, repentance is heart work. Repentance is heart work. It's not just external. It's not just behaviors only. Verse 3, Samuel says, Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, um, then rid yourself of the asherah Your heart. Verse 6, there's this strange right, ritual with the water. They pour it out when they get together at Mizpah. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. What does that mean? There's nothing in the Old Testament like this. Um, some people think that maybe it's because they're fasting, so they pour out the water before the Lord and they say, we are more dependent upon you than we are upon water, maybe. Or it could be a sign as they pour it out, God, this is how undone we are. We are so undone, we are as uncontained and vulnerable in our grief before you as this water is. If we are ever to be gathered together, it's because of the work that you you will do. This is how hopeless we are. Repentance is not just a question of stopping behaviors. It has to do with what you value and what you trust and what you hope for. The, the battle of persistent repentance always goes deeper than at first it appears to go. Now third here, notice repentance may have a corporate element. Repentance may have a corporate element. It may. Notice that the Israelites gathered together at Mizpah. They all gathered together. This, and I know some of you, your minds work very fast and you're already thinking about how we can do this in our congregation. If this is we're talking about corporate repentance, you're thinking about this. Notice this is not something, though, that you can program or schedule or manage. Uh, this meeting followed 20 years of the ministry of Samuel the prophet. I think the point here is that we can sin individually and repent individually, and we must. And we can sin corporately and repent corporately. It's a reminder of our corporate nature of our faith. Following Jesus is personal, but it's never private. Remember, as, as a member of our congregation, you are among the people with whom you are to repent, among whom you can repent talk about this very much but let's make a list here what would we put on a list of things that you need to find out about a church uh things that need to be true of a church if you were to to go and join the congregation well um you know they uh, the number you know the number one list church consultants will tell you parking gotta have good parking (laughs) that's important um um, uh, are your are my children safe and are they well cared for and taught um how's the preaching in the church um, what's the music like when we gather together? You know what, what? Rarely, I've never seen this on anybody's list. Is this a group of people that I can get on my knees before God with? Hmm. It, it is a sign of health in a congregation that there is an increasing sense that you are among people with whom you can confess your sins and among whom you can repent. It's a sign of health in our church, that there's just increasing sense of this is the people that, with whom I confess my sins and among whom I can repent. Uh, Rebecca Piper wrote in one of her books about an unusual experience she had one day. She said it was a, a day of dealing with personal failings. Two different experiences. One was in the morning she went to a Harvard graduate level psychology class. In the other in the afternoon, she went to a Christian Bible study that met across the street. So she went to this uh, class with these uh, graduate students from Harvard, who were to be counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists and she said they were all open about their troubles. they talked about the fact that they were um, Uh, They had troubles with greed and jealousy and anger and being afraid and one of the people in the class very openly said, I'm so angry at my father for what he did to me and I'm just filled with bitterness and I don't think I'm ever going to be able to forgive him and I don't know what to do because I don't like being this way but this is just the way I feel. In the afternoon, she went to a Christian Bible study, and all of them, the students there sat with their Bibles open, and they talked about God's answers and God's promises, but no one actually ever talked about having any problems themselves. They prayed for a friend who was struggling, but there's nothing for them. Piper wrote this. The first group, the psychology class, seemed to have all of the problems and none of the answers. And the second group, the Bible study, had all of the answers and no problems. Is that true in our church? Do We have all the answers because we read the Bible, we love the Bible, but none of us have any problems, at least not that we're going to talk about while we're here. We're not trying to create corporate repentance here. That's not the goal But what if the Spirit of God so moves among us? Would this be foreign to us, so foreign to us that we wouldn't know how to respond? Is confession and repentance so strange to your accountability group or growth group that you wouldn't know how to repent corporately? Repentance may have a corporate element. Here's number four. Number four, final thing we can learn about repentance here. Repentance does not guarantee freedom from hardship. Repentance does not guarantee freedom from hardship. The Israelites gathered to repent at Mizpah, and the Philistines came. Uh, in fact, uh, they may have come because the Israelites were gathering at Mizpah. back in the book of Judges, the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah and the Philist uh, for war, and maybe the Philistines see them gathering again and think, "Oh, they're arming, We've got to go get them." So the Philistines come and, and are going to attack them. But this attack is no reason for the people to stop. In fact, they plead with Samuel, "Please keep praying for us, pray for us, because um, we're not going to stop turning from God. But We want his protection and help right now. And Samuel offers a sacrifice. Verse 9 says, a suckling lamb. There's a lot of nursing in these first few chapters of Samuel. Did you notice that? The Bible's so put together so wonderfully. So uh, Hannah's nursing in the first few chapters, and then those nursing cows we talked about from chapter 6, and then there's this suckling lamb here. We're going to get to the beheading giants and the spears and all that stuff later, but there's a lot of nursing in these first few chapters. Um, echoes meant to show us how the Bible, this is one book with a cohesive message, uh, uh, well, he offers the sacrifice. God delivers them, they set up a stone. They call the stone Ebenezer, Ebenezer. Um, stone of help. Thus far the Lord has helped us. We used to sing, right? Here I raise my Ebenezer. We don't sing that anymore. Now we sing Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place. It kind of means the same. You don't have to explain what Ebenezer means every time we sing, Come thou founder of every blessing. God delivers the nation. So, wonderful. Don't take First Samuel 7 in that sense, though, as a promise for your life. Because repentant people still get cancer. And repentant people still go bankrupt. And repentant people still lose their jobs. And repentant people still have prodigal children. Here in this story, there's repentance, hardship, deliverance. It may not be your story. Repentance, hardship, then hardship. Except repentant people experience that devastation differently. With the Lord to help them. I often think of 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 7 through 9. Look what it says. It says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And here's Paul's experience. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. This is how repentant people suffer. They may be hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, but they're not crushed in despair, abandoned, or destroyed. Why? Because of the promise of God's presence. In a moment, we're going to turn and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. This is... Is it not a reminder of that great event in the Bible, in all of human history, that announces that God is for us and with us? Samuel put up a stone monument, and it was there to remind the people, thus far, God has helped us. And in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus instituted this for us, the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup, that is a reminder of God's anointed king, the Lord Jesus. Jesus. We come together this morning to remember how he has shepherded us. What does he do? He leads us to repent for sins for which he himself has already paid on the cross as our substitute. Who can speak adequately of the sufficiency of God's anointed king, the Lord Jesus? As a prophet, he confronts us. As our atonement, he covers us. As a warrior, he delivers us. This is why we repent, what drives us to repent, because of the one that we turn to. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are grateful to you uh, for the fact that you heard your repentant people in uh, the book of Samuel, that they, they turned to you and you were gracious and merciful toward them to move to them and um, deliver them and care for them. Father, we are thankful this morning that you are ever a more faithful shepherd. We are faithless sheep, but you are a good and great shepherd. We are mindful of this morning, even as we think about taking the Lord's Supper of Jesus, who said he was the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. Father, we thank you that at your throne of grace, we find a hearty and warm welcome as we come. We don't need to dream of our fitness or, or think about uh, how ready we are. All the fitness we need is found already in the Lord Jesus. We, we thank you for your um, welcome, your uh, glad anticipation of our turning to you. And I do pray, Father, that you would make us faithful in this task of repentance, turning from and turning to. Do that work in us according to your kindness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.